Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's I Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's I Critical Care Podcast. The I Critical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast, recorded Friday, May 26, 2006. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Today's podcast topic is Rapid Response Systems, also known as rapid response teams or medical emergency teams. Our guest today is Marie R. Baldessari, MD. She's the medical director of the intensive care unit at McGee Women's Hospital, part of the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and she's an associate professor of critical care medicine as well as being an associate professor of nursing at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and School of Nursing, respectively. Today, we will be discussing her article from the June edition of Critical Connections entitled, Rapid Response Systems, Have They Made a Difference? Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for the invitation. This is a uh, obviously a very hot topic in critical care now and is really garnering a lot of attention uh, in what is a fairly uh, short amount of time, especially for health care. And um, I was very excited about this opportunity, and I thought a a reasonable place to start would be to give you an opportunity, especially being at Pittsburgh, to talk a little bit about the history of the concept of a rapid response team. Sure, I'd be glad to. It's interesting because the history of rapid response teams or medical emergency teams has really been around for for quite some time, And and it's quite ironic that it's just sort of catching on now. Um, when we look historically at rapid response teams, many of us, and I'm sure in, in where you practice and where I am, we've had uh, code blue teams. You know, many hospitals call them different um, titles, code blue, condition A, and these were the teams that responded to cardiac arrest. And historically, we've had these teams for many, many years at most hospitals, nationally as well as internationally. However, I think over the years what began to happen was that people noticed that patients were having trouble on the floor, and because of our system of sort of what we call delegation to the dumbest, and let me clarify that, um, this is a phraseology that was sort of coined by Dr. Michael DeVita from Pittsburgh, and what he meant by that was, particularly in academic centers where you have the intern and then you have the resident and then you have the attending physician, a patient would have a problem on the floor, and who would you call? You would call, the nurse that is, would call the intern. Well, the intern can't do much of anything and doesn't have the medical background to really address some of these issues and always had to check with his senior. So he would call the next person in line, who in turn would call the next person in line, which we noticed obviously caused a tremendous delay 
in one, assessing the patient, and two, treating the patient. So some hospitals began to catch on to this. I mean, we started in Pittsburgh with this rapid response system primarily because of one incident, um, and I'll share this with you. Our chief of surgery, his wife was, um, had a procedure done and then had complications after the procedure, and he could not get anyone to come see his wife because she was having these problems. She wasn't arresting. She hadn't stopped breathing, but she was having a problem. And it was 4 a.m. in the morning. The surgical resident was busy in the operating room. There was another one involved with the trauma. And what ended up happening was that his wife went on to have more serious problems, and then a code blue was called. He sat down and said, we have to do better than this. We have to get to our patients before the heart stops and before the lungs stop um, breathing. We need to get to them when we have a crisis. And really, Pittsburgh was one of the first places to start this concept. The Australians also uh, picked up on this very early on uh, and started this. And it took a while for this to catch on, and I'm not sure what the delay was. There were only a few places throughout the country that started this. In fact, in Pittsburgh, we started this back in the 70s, but we never created criteria for this medical crisis so that people were very unsure what was a medical crisis. It was only about maybe 15 years later, 10 years later, when we actually came up with objective criteria that people could use, we could educate people about, inform people, that is the nurses, the respiratory therapists, all of the uh, ancillary services, as well as the physicians, that people began to see that this made sense, that they could respond to people in crisis because we had given them educational objectives, that if the patient has this symptom or shows this sign, then you call a medical crisis. Well, and is it there, you brought up sort of a, a couple of really important points that I just wanted to reemphasize. The first is within academic medical centers, you know, they're extremely hierarchical and have been that way, steeped in tradition, and and yet this concept of bringing someone with some uh, more experience and some more training to the bedside quickly, and yet not short-circuiting or somehow detracting from the training and education that is a critical part of becoming a physician it was something I wanted to address later, but maybe you could talk about it now because you really, you really, really hit the, the crux right there is that how can you become a surgical resident or, or a critical care doctor or an internal medicine doctor without getting the training and yet not jeopardize the safety of patient care? I well, guess that's I, really the crux. I think that is exactly what the problem is. Uh, and we have been able to to rectify this over time, that is to create a balance between educating our physician trainees and our nurses and responding to our patients' needs. In the environment we live today where there are so many institutions and organizations looking very critically at medicine and our patients looking critically at medicine, um, what am I going to get for my dollar? I expect the best care when I go into that hospital. So do our patients expect to be managed in crisis by the least experienced? No, they expect to be managed by the most experienced. And I think that kind of impetus, not only from 
outside organizations, but from patients' expectations, has really sort of you know, propelled this movement forward. One of the other questions I wanted to have you do, and that might expand a little bit from the article, is when we were designing this at our particular institution, we called around to other institutions, and one of them was yours. And I was fascinated by the structure of you, the rapid response team. I spoke to one of the professors there, and they were, and I think I got this right, but please correct me, that there were multiple rapid response teams and at the various different hospitals, but that it is a 24-7 model, and who particularly makes up these teams? Was it an expansion of your code team? If, if you could talk about that for a couple of minutes, that'd sure. be great. Well, I, I can address what we do in Pittsburgh and, and address it uh, uh, on a more global level as well, because it really, it, the issue is what are the teams, uh, what should the teams be consist of, or what members should, should constitute a rapid response team? And, it, and I've given lectures on this in so many places, and I've gone so many places, and I've and I've pretty much seen every type of hospital that, that you can imagine, you know, from the community hospital to, you know, the smaller academic center to the larger academic center. And my response is always the same. You need to look internally. You need to look at what your resources are. Our model in Pittsburgh, which is a model based on intensivist reply, that is we have an intensivist who is hired by the hospital, and, and this is not from our department. This is from the hospital. The hospital came to our department and said, we want someone dedicated to responding to all code blues. Uh, we have a different terminology, but I'll use that since that's probably uh, the more common uh, phrase. And we want an intensivist to respond to all medical crisis. And we want them to do nothing besides that for 24-7. And they were willing to pay our department, to have someone in-house 24-7 that is the most experienced intensivist in-house responding to this. Now, in addition to this, we have the respiratory therapist, we have ICU nurses, we have an ICU fellow who as part of, and we rotate the pager among the fellows. So we have a very sophisticated group of individuals who respond, but that is a big academic center with a large critical care medicine department, that clearly, that will not apply to the small community hospital that has perhaps only an ED doc in house at night or a hospitalist covering patients at night or who may just have an anesthesiologist in house. So I tell people you need to look internally. You need to look at what are your resources. Does it need to be physician driven or as most of the rapid response systems are in this country and throughout the world, should it be nurse-driven? Should the nurse, an ICU nurse or a dedicated outreach nurse, should she be the first responder and then call for more expert help if needed? So it really depends on where you are and what resources you have. The model can vary tremendously. That is, the team members can vary so, so to try to put um, some generalizations, it, it seems that the theme then is lowering the threshold for the nurse taking care of a patient to get some form of higher level of, of clinical expertise quickly to the bedside early on to try and prevent further deterioration. If you're Absolutely. trying to summarize it. I think this movement has probably empowered nurses more than any other movement 
in history, uh, in most recent history of nursing, except for maybe standing orders, which our nurses uh, will use in, in certain venues in the hospital. It, we have actually done several polls of our nurses, and they are so pleased that they finally have a mechanism to get a physician quickly to the bedside. You can imagine the frustration on the nurse's part when you have a patient that you're concerned about and you call someone to evaluate this patient and the physician says, well, I'm busy doing something else right now. I can't come. Let me check with my senior. You go through a series of phone calls. And what's happening to the nurse is she's standing there at the bedside monitoring her patient and watching this patient deteriorate and not having the ability to be able to assess or treat this patient by herself. I think this movement, the rapid response system activation, has empowered nurses to get people to the bedside quickly. And nurses are just tickle pink that this is happening. Our patients are being assessed quickly and treated quickly. So the nurse doesn't have to stand there and watch her patient deteriorate. How is it decided at, at your institution, or if you could talk for a few minutes about the, the relationship between the rapid response team and the code team, or why wasn't it decided to just expand when the code team would be called? Can you talk a little bit about that? That must well, in interesting... our institution, we, in fact, uh, have used an expansion of the code team. Essentially, the people who respond to our, we call it a condition A, a code blue, um, are the same exact people who respond to um, our condition C. Now, at the Women's Hospital, where I also work, which is part of the uh, University of Pittsburgh, because we don't have as many personnel as we do at the bigger university hospital, we've abbreviated some of the members. So we haven't used all of the members of the Code Blue team on the Condition C team. I think in most places they have used the medical crisis team as a sort of extension of the Condition A team or Code Blue team. But once again, I think that depends on your resources. It depends on the people you have available and then you can decide who is the best to respond. Do you need all the same players? I, I don't think so. Uh, many institutions have nurse-driven uh, rapid response systems, and usually it's a nurse and perhaps a respiratory therapist. We find that respiratory therapists are sort of an essential part of the rapid response system because if you look at the data in the literature and you look at the reasons why rapid response systems are activated, it usually is a, a respiratory problem. Maybe a neurologic problem, could be chest pain, could be you know, a multitude of things, but probably the most frequent uh, reason for calling a rapid response um, team is because of some alteration in the respiratory status, you know, wheezing, um, uh, respiratory insufficiency. I mean, there's a multitude of, of respiratory symptoms. So having a respiratory therapist is sort of an essential component of the rapid response system. Well, and um, there were two issues I wanted to discuss there. First was, it, it seems that, and we're doing this, and most hospitals have a fairly standard uh, set of criteria for calling the rapid response team, which really is a combination of very specific criteria in terms of heart rate, respiratory rate, and then sort of a gestalt sense that the nurse isn't comfortable with the patient. Do you have any uh, comments on that? I know a lot of those came from Pittsburgh. 
Well, if you look at, you know, it, it, and once again, I go back to the code blue, the cardiac arrest data, which we clearly have more of in the literature because those teams have been around for some time. If you look at that data historically and, and in the literature, what we see is that, and I, and I quote this in my article, up to about 85% of, of patients, when we looked back at the literature, we found that these patients had signs of clinical instability about six to eight hours before they arrested. That is, they had a change in heart rate, blood pressure, um, saturation, a change in mental status, things that are, are easily assessed by you, me, the nurse, uh, any, any person at the bedside. So that's why I, I believe that the criteria is very similar because when patients begin to show signs of instability, that's how, we use, that's how they usually manifest. They have a change in perfusion. So it might be a change in blood pressure, but it could be a change in mental status. There could be a change in, in urine output. You know, anything that measures perfusion, a change in heart rate, high, low, a change in respiratory rate. Um, these are really simple, basic parameters that 99.9% of the patients are probably going to manifest some changes in. Right. However, in addition to those objective criteria, we all know that the good nurse at the bedside who's been seeing her patient from the moment she stepped onto the floor and been following this patient through the day sometimes has that gut feeling, as you said, gestalt. We all know this. It's, it's intuitive. We know that something is wrong with the patient. We may not have that objective data. There may not be a dramatic change in the heart rate or the saturation or the blood pressure, but we know this patient doesn't look right. And the bedside nurse is really the best person to assess this because she's been at the bedside literally and she's monitored her patient over time. And that's why every, if you look at all the criteria for condition C or rapid response system, everyone has that sort of catch-all phrase, you know, the, the patient that doesn't look good or the nurse who just has a sense that something is wrong with the patient. And so just to summarize that, and then we'll move on, we're taking a signal, uh, and actually a fairly simple signal, and yet we're formalizing our approach to looking for it and how we respond to it. Exactly. I mean, these signals have been out there since time eternity. It's just we're now putting a very objective procedure to how we look at these. And if we fall out of a certain parameter, if the blood pressure goes too low or the heart rate goes too high or the saturation goes too low, then that is a trigger to activate a rapid response system rather than make multiple phone calls trying to get someone to the bedside. Well, this segues nicely into another, I think, I guess a slightly more controversial area are outcomes for rapid response teams. And I just had a couple thoughts is, you know, the first step for a hospital, their outcome is can they set up the rapid response team and just doing it, and that in itself should be a measure that that's good. But then I know at a more uh, mature, more sophisticated rapid response team like at Pittsburgh, you have some very important outcomes in terms of your incidence of cardiac arrest, decrease of number of admissions to the ICU, and I guess satisfaction, both from nurses and from uh, primary care providers, and I was wondering if you could talk for a few minutes about some of the sure. outcomes. I think 
part of the, you know, we certainly, when you look at, once again, the, the code blue data from cardiac arrest, we, we have that in the literature showing that, you know, rapid response to someone who has had an immediate cardiac arrest in the hospital, you know, we have good outcomes. Well, we don't have great outcomes, actually, when you look at that, but they're better than not responding to patients. We at least have some survivability. Um, unfortunately, the, you know, the mortality rate from in-hospital cardiac arrest is, is very high, and there's very little you can do about the patient who, you know, has the massive pulmonary embolism or has the malignant ventricular fibrillation. Those patients are going to expire probably regardless of what you do. However, accumulating data looking at rapid response systems has been a little slow in coming, although now I think if you look at the literature, we we clearly have seen more and more of this data coming out. What is the most objective outcome to look at? I'm not sure what the best answer is. I think what we have used in Pittsburgh and many others have have used as, as a criteria of success is that we have looked at the number of cardiac arrests versus the number of crises. And the number of cardiac arrests has plummeted and the number of calls for rapid response systems has, has doubled, tripled, and quadrupled. Well, what does that tell us? I think what it's telling us is we are getting to our patients before they have the cardiac arrest. So we are not ignoring those signals that we alluded to before, the heart rate, the blood pressure, the saturation, that we're responding to our patients before the heart stops or before they stop breathing. And our success rate has been good because we've decreased the number of ICU admissions, that is, unexpected ICU admissions. And if you look at what we're actually doing at the bedside, it's very much of it is very routine stuff. You know, when you think about rapid response systems being led by an intensivist, you automatically assume that, you know, we're doing high technology and, you know, bedside technology right there in the patient's room. We've looked at this in Pittsburgh, and many others have looked at this as well, and we've monitored exactly what we've done. And it's very simple, basic stuff. Most of the time, it involves perhaps ordering labs, you know, increasing the number of respiratory treatments, such as, you know, bronchodilator therapy, making sure that the patient with the tracheostomy is being suctioned because you're called because he has a mucus plug because he hasn't been suctioned for the past eight hours. Very simple bedside stuff. And if you look at the number of patients who, who come to the ICU after a rapid response system, it is actually less than half of the patients who need to be brought to the ICU which tells us we just are responding so quickly to these problems that we're heading them off at the pass. So we don't have to have these patients eventually arrest and then have a bad outcome. One of the other areas I wanted to ask you about and is this issue of, you see in the literature, education and culture change when you're going from an institution that doesn't have a rapid response team to one that does. That can often be a great challenge. Would you like to share some of your expertise on some of these well, issues? I think it's been a challenge for many people over the years. I think it's probably less problematic now because I think institutions, hospitals, are beginning to feel the pressure from organizations such as the IHI, the AMC, JACO, all of these institutions, as you well know, are pushing for this concept of rapid response system because 
they believe that this is a way to save lives. So hospitals are now being, you know, sort of pressured by these groups, which clearly helps our cause. When we first started this, uh, you know, way back in the 70s, there clearly weren't these groups particularly interested in this. I mean, this was a, a new concept, and we had no data to support our existence. And creating a, a culture change was very hard. The way we did it was to recognize that not everyone was going to buy into this. We have, in Pittsburgh, mostly a surgical, it's a transplant center, so we deal primarily with surgical patients. And we found that initially maybe a fourth of the surgeons did not agree to this whole concept. And rather than hit our heads against the wall continuously, we said, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to try this out on some of the patients, that is the surgeons who agree, we'll try this on these certain floors. And the surgeons who don't want to participate, that is they don't want their patients to be part of this, we will exclude those patients. We did this for about maybe three or four months, and then we looked at the data. Well, the data showed that these patients who were on the services of the surgeons who were not involved with the rapid response systems continued to have very high cardiac arrest rates, continued to have very high admission rates to the ICU. And when you compare that to the data for the patients who did have rapid response system activation, it was dramatically different. So we got buy-in from not only the surgeons but the hospital because everybody looked at the objective data and said, hey, listen, we all need to be a part of this. This is clearly something that is making a difference. So that's what I recommend to people when they tell me, you know, well, not everyone is going to buy into this. If, if everyone doesn't buy into this, then you take a subset of patients, you work with those patients, you bring the data back to administration, and numbers usually don't lie. And my experience with hospital administrators and with surgeons and with physicians is they like to see the numbers. Show them the numbers and show them the data, and then you've usually got a captive audience. I thought we'd uh, conclude by letting you talk a little bit about the Society of Critical Care Medicine's uh, Rapid Response System Training for First Responders pre-course, and I understand you were the co-chair of that, and maybe if you could share with us a little bit about what the course is going to be like and some of the topics you might be speaking on. Sure. I think um, this, is a, uh, this will take place in, in Baltimore in September of this year, and it's, it's going to be a very exciting course. Dr. Michael DeVita had the first national international course in, in Pittsburgh here in June, and that was the first really rapid response system course, and, and, and that was a, a good introduction to rapid response systems. What we'd like to do in this one-day uh, uh, pre-course is sort of take it from the beginning, give a little bit of the history, but basically teach people and educate about some of the tools on how to create these rapid response systems. The, the biggest dilemma, I think, for most people is how do I start? Where do I start? Where do I go? Who do I petition? Who should be the members of the team? So what we'd like to do in this course in Baltimore is really give them some of the tools that they can use, not based on the Pittsburgh model, but show them a large group of models saying, Maybe one of these can fit into your hospital venue. Uh, we'd like to talk about the tools. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about outcomes data as well. But I think we're going to mostly focus on 
the tools, and how to create rapid response systems. We're also going to be talking about education, that is, using simulation. We have found that teaching crisis management is something that you can do very nicely with human simulation. We do it in Pittsburgh. It's being done in many other centers. Jeff Lighthall is also going to be talking about this at that conference. Um, it's going to be very exciting because, as you know, simulation, human simulation teaching is a very hot topic right now. And this seems just the perfect mechanism to teach people how to respond to crisis, to how to be a team. It's, it's one thing to organize a team for rapid response system, but it's also another thing to educate this team how to work with each other, how to delegate authority, how to, you know, how to respond to crisis. Sort of uh, Mike DeVito always uses the NASCAR demonstration where you know, the car pulls into the, the pit during a race and, uh, you know, five or six guys jump out and everybody knows exactly what they have to do. No one has to tell them what they have to do. You know, one guy goes to the front wheel and the other guy, you know, checks the oil. And the way we envision, the way I would like to envision rapid response systems is that we do exactly that. We walk into the room and everyone knows what their job has to be. But the only way you can do that is if you train people. And training people using the simulator uh, is a very effective way to teach crisis management. And we'll touch upon that in the um, September conference. We've been speaking today on the podcast with Marie R. Baldessari. She is an associate professor of critical care at the University of Pittsburgh. And we have been speaking on the exciting topic of rapid response team implementation. Thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you. It's been an honor. This concludes our podcast for Friday, May 26, 2006. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. If you have any comments, questions, or ideas for future podcasts, or even some stories about your own rapid response team, please call the Society of Critical Care Medicine's audio feedback line at 1-847-493-6498 to share your thoughts. Critical Connections is the official bi-monthly news magazine of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, offering the latest information about critical care to healthcare professionals. Members of the Society of Critical Care Medicine receive a free subscription as well as other benefits. For more information, visit www.sccm.org. Thanks again for listening. The Society's new conference, Excellence in Quality and Safety in Critical Care, in Baltimore, Maryland, USA, September 21st through 23rd, 2006, will bring together leading experts to examine patient safety, adverse medical events, and preventable medical errors, as well as identify everyday solutions to incorporate into practice. Using evidence-based studies and proven guidelines, participants will learn how to create a more efficient and safer ICU. In addition, pre-courses in coding and billing practices or medical emergency and rapid response teams will be offered. Register today by calling 1-847-827-6888 or visiting www.sccm.org.